Oh, well, good to be here today filling in for uh, Tim. For, uh, <laughs> Tim. <laughs> Pete. Don't tell him I called him Tim. That's my only mistake I'm going to make this morning. <laughs> so it's interesting talking about the parables. Yeah, so I'm not really in my sweet spot. Um, yeah, we alluded to that earlier. Um, so I'm in the New Testament, but there are some really interesting things about the parables here in Luke. So I might pray one more time, and then we'll talk a little bit about the broader context before we zero in. Let's pray. Well, Father, we uh, thank you for the grace that allows each of us to be in the kingdom, and we thank you for the words of Jesus that really warn us uh, to make sure that we know whether we're in or out, that whether we're signed on or not. And so many of these parables have a, a note of admonition, a note of warning. Uh, help us to find that right balance this morning in how we receive this parable. And uh, help us not to allow the business of living to obscure the priorities of the kingdom. Uh, we're just prone to distraction, Lord, so... Help us to be undistracted this morning, but also help us to take the lesson of this parable not to be distracted in living, uh, even this morning. Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, and there might be a few now, I haven't preached for a while, uh, I work over at MST, Melbourne School of Theology, and some of you with deeper roots in Melbourne will, might know that as BCV, Bible College of Victoria, from when it was out at Lilydale. And I'm actually on study leave for six months. So I did have a colleague say to me when I visited about a month ago, how are you enjoying your holidays? Um, that's actually not how study leave is defined and it's not really how it's experienced either. <laughs> They're not the same thing. I'm meant to be doing something productive with it. But it is a little bit different. I'm not there at the moment. One of the things I find that uh, affects my role in teaching is these days having to kind of keep an eye out for plagiarism and it would be true for anyone in education. I think those of you doing high school teaching, there'd be a few high school teachers, you almost have to not worry about it, right? You know so much content's just being ripped off a, a web page somewhere, it's very hard to watch for all of that. I feel responsible to watch for it a little bit more but it's a constant juggle for me to know just where to kind of draw the line on what's plagiarised and what's just influenced by other people. I did read where an academic said in a book or an article in just recent days, look, some of these ideas I've got from other people and I no longer know where that was. You know, it's just percolated into my thinking and that's how it works. Our challenge in uh, tertiary education is all the more challenging now because you have websites where you can just say, write me an essay on this topic and the AI behind the website will, will research essentially in a kind of a, a random data gathering way and create an essay for you. And so we have a new level of challenge for watching for uh, something that's derived or artificial. We have to try and watch for um, essays that have been created by AI and not by a human mind. Now AI often produces things that are a bit disconnected I read that something like 30% of the content on YouTube is AI-created, and I think I'm noticing it now when the, the series of pictures and the sequence of the logic of the explanation is not quite coherent, kind of jumps from point to point, but the trouble is that students do that as well. So it's very hard for me to tell, really, when the logical jumps 
uh, because AI is still getting smarter or because students are still working on their uh, progress as well. Now, in the ancient world, it kind of worked a little bit differently. You didn't have to acknowledge your sources. You know, you weren't under this kind of university-level responsibility to put a footnote in when you've borrowed from someone else. They would just kind of borrow and let the reader sort it out. And then many times they were expecting that the well-informed reader would know what source they're accessing. So there were no such things as footnotes, but they weren't necessarily trying to conceal their sources. They were really saying, you know, you, the reader, have the responsibility of knowing if I'm quoting some classical author, you know, if I'm quoting Plato or Cicero or, you know, one of those famous literary figures of the ancient world or, uh, you know, some other thing that you should know about. So this is interesting because it actually affects how the Gospels are constructed and it goes by the name these days of creative imitation. So in the ancient world, it was a known thing to do to take a document that already existed and for a creative and gifted person to think, uh, this is good, but I can improve on it. I've got access to more information, I've got a new audience that I'm going to write for, etc. And they would consciously and obviously take this document and rework it for a new purpose and a new audience. Uh, I've been dealing with that with some of my work with the Church Fathers because the Church Father Ambrose takes a sermon series by Basil the Great and reworks it in a very obvious way and produces it for an, a Latin instead of a Greek audience. So he wasn't doing it, he wasn't being sneaky. The idea was, you ought to know that this famous sermon series by Basil is out there and it's been published, but he was speaking to Greek people in a kind of a different world. Now I'm going to process that, change the illustrations, rework it, and put it in nice Latin for a Roman audience. So it wasn't sneaky, it was for a new purpose. So what did our gospel writers do? Both Matthew and Luke had access to the document Mark, but they had new purposes, new audiences, new point to make, and they both reworked Mark in different ways. And some of the information that Matthew and Luke used, they had access to the same thing, but then they had all this unique stuff that they had access to as well. And so one of the fascinating things about the Gospel of Luke is that lots and lots of his parables are unique just to Luke. So the prodigal son and so many of the parables that, you know, if we had to list off a few parables off the top of our heads that would come to mind, lots of them are just in Luke. And then when Luke is reporting things that happen in the ministry of Jesus, just the way that Matthew or Mark do, they don't report them necessarily in the same spot or with the same grand plan. And so because we're focusing in Luke, and that happens to be really appropriate because Luke has all these unique parables and he has a unique way of presenting the ministry of Jesus. And so you can think of Luke as having three main chunks, right? There's sort of this introductory chunk up until about the middle of chapter 9, and you're being introduced to Jesus. You've got all the birth stories, right? They last three chapters or so. And then chapter 4, Luke is introduced to the world in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah, you know, talks about the day of release from captivity and the day of the Lord's kind of grace and invitation, quoting Isaiah 61. And it, he stops reading because he's, he's been the assigned Bible reader for the day and he reads from the scroll. He stops reading and he sits down and Luke says, every eye in the synagogue was fastened on Jesus. 
So there's this moment of suspense, and then he simply says, or at least all of the sermon that you're introduced to is, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. So that's just dropping a bombshell in an ammunition dump. You know, that's a huge, huge thing to say. That scripture saying, you know, God's great new day is coming, this is that day and here I am. I'm announcing that. Release from captivity, the day of God's reconciliation. So that's an early note. That's the note on which Jesus' ministry kicks off in the Gospel of Luke. You're introduced to some of his early works, some of his early miracles, uh, some of his early parables. And then we have this moment in chapter 9 where Jesus confronts his disciples with what they believe about him. Uh, let me try and find that. Around about um, 9.23 or so. be worth getting that word perfect. I'm reading from the NET version at the moment. Just that's something I'm investigating. Uh, okay, so he is asking about the crowds. This is Luke 9.18. And this is a, coming up to a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Luke. All for the sake of context for our parable in chapter 14. So Luke 9.18. Once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ, that's the Messiah of God. But he forcefully commanded them not to tell this to anyone. And here's some new info. Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and experts in the law and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is the first time in Luke that Jesus tells them that news. And then what follows immediately is a challenge about the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to become my follower, my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. You know, in, in other eras, that might have been like saying you've got to take up your guillotine or take up your noose and, and kind of carry that around mentally. We have a... Uh, I'm not sure who said this to me. I, I wonder if it was our old uh, former vice principal who uh, was a missionary at um, MST. I think he said something like, we were trained as missions to be ready to preach, pray or die at a moment's notice. Uh, he, he lived and worked in the subcontinent and I suppose all three were real possibilities. But this is the kind of readiness that Jesus is calling for from his disciples. And so shortly he's telling them that he's going to be headed for Jerusalem. Um, I think it's in 20... Right, he certainly says it in verse 44. Oh, no, so that's where he's going to, again, face the fact of his death. Take these words to heart, verse 44 of chapter 9. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So an interesting move that uh, kicks in in this chapter is that Jesus starts to set out to go to Jerusalem. That's verse 51. The days drew near for him to be taken up, and Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And so right across from Luke 9 to 19, there's this idea that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. It's like a guided missile locked onto its target, and this is the destiny of Jesus from this point. This is a Lucan thing. This is a Luke gospel thing 
that Jesus is destined and headed for Jerusalem from chapter 9 on. And there's a big chunk from then until he arrives in Jerusalem that has this uniformity about it, a kind of a coherence, the middle block. Jesus' ministry is dominated from this point on by this focus, this goal. And the tone, therefore, is that he knows he's going to be sacrificed, he's going to die. He keeps warning the disciples, this is what this life is. It's like we're on the road to Golgotha already. This is a road to the cross. And so when he challenges them about what it costs to be a disciple, it's with this knowledge that he's going to die. Now, uh, this evening might run this as an exercise, I think, a little bit harder with a group this size. I was putting it to my kids last night, if they could think of a movie scene where you know the protagonist is doomed already and they've got a kind of a mission to complete um, before they die. Uh, Now, when I looked on the web, there are lots and lots of movies that have that kind of motif. Half of them seem to be horror movies, so I'm not a big horror movie watcher. I hadn't seen those. I do remember a couple of movies where you know or you suspect the protagonist is going to die, but they've got something important to get done first. So this is the air around Luke 9 to 19, right? Christ, the the central figure in this whole story, it's almost a biography of Christ, Uh, we know he has been saying he's destined to die. Now, something else that's really interesting about these chapters is that they seem to be symmetrical, at least to some degree. Uh, This was a bit of a Bible writer thing to do, to make a passage, uh, a verse or a passage or even a kind of a large section of a book, symmetrical. And to mention key things in the middle and then sometimes to sort of work out in steps from there. Uh, You can imagine how much gets written on this sort of stuff. But let me take you to the suggested centre point of these chapters because it's just a little bit before our chapter, chapter 14. The suggested centre point of these nine or ten chapters, and I think this is pretty strong, is the end of Luke 13. Now notice how the things we saw in Luke chapter 9 come back in the centre here. So I'm reading Luke 13 from 31 to 35. Luke 13, 31. At that time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, Get away from here, because Herod wants to kill you. But he said to to them, Go and tell that fox, Look, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll complete my work. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it's impossible that a prophet should be killed outside of Jerusalem. This was actually the way Jesus' ministry started in Luke chapter 4. You know, that sermon in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 had him almost thrown off the cliff that, uh, you know, at the outskirts of town at Nazareth there. So his ministry began with near-death experience. And here in the centre, they're saying, the Pharisees are saying, look, you've got to lie low, you know. Um, Herod's out for you the way he got John the Baptist. Jesus says, you know, I've actually got to stay on target. Um, You know, forget the torpedoes, (laughs) forget the threats. Um, You know, the main thing, I'm I'm going to die. The main thing is I would hardly be in the the line of the prophets of Israel if if I died outside Jerusalem. Right, that's the place it makes the most sense. Israel being Israel, um, me being the Christ, you know, makes the most sense in a sense, to meet my fate in Jerusalem. The lament follows in verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, 
How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So I wanted to gather you in, as it were, into the kingdom, but you resisted. You didn't want to do this. I actually saw this happen on the roof of the building here one day. I was parked here early for music practice, and why was I not inside? I'd either resigned or maybe one of my kids was doing music practice and I was still in the car outside. And I saw a plover up on the roof of the older part of the church. And it was about 5.30 in the evening, you know, getting dusky. And this mother plover just lifts up the wings, gives a few chirps. And these three little bubby plovers just all come in. She just sits down and that's it. They're ready for the night. So it was quite fascinating and kind of appropriate that it was at church that I saw this thing happen. So I knew it was real. Mother, mother birds really do that, even in the 21st century. So this has been proposed as the centre point of all these chapters and um, the more I look into it, the more I think that that's viable. So it's interesting, you go either side a little way and you do get some stuff that matches. And so we're going to have passages or uh, things that match up with things I'm going to actually talk about. Most obviously... If you have a look at 13 verse 10, going back a little bit, it says Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten herself up completely. And Jesus saw her on which day? Sabbath day. And he called her to him and said, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. He placed his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. But the president of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Right? Sabbath healing. So it's interesting that when you come to our passage in chapter 14, one Sabbath when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely and there was a man whose body was swollen with fluid, right? Fluid retention problem. Dropsy used to be called in old versions. And Jesus asked the experts in religious law and Pharisees, should I heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful? They didn't say anything this time. So Jesus took hold of the man and healed him and sent him on his way. Now, he then says, you know, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're upset about this healing because, again, it's on the Sabbath. They haven't said it this time, but he's reading their minds. And he says, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So I know you. I know what you do. And if need confronts you and it's... Uh, some versions say a son or an ox, some say a sheep or an ox. But you know, if there's something important to you that's in trouble, you will fix that problem even on the Sabbath. So Jesus is pointing out really kind of a hypocrisy in their lifestyle. They'll do that if necessary, but they're really bothered when he helps someone on the Sabbath and does something that constitutes work. So isn't it interesting that back in chapter 13, almost the same argument justifies the healing of the woman on the Sabbath. So in 13.15, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from its stall and lead it to water? So he, he justifies these two different Sabbath healings with corresponding arguments. Right? Here's what you do. What I'm doing is more important because I'm healing a human and, and not just meeting the need of an animal. Then he has in chapter 13 two short parables to illustrate the nature of the kingdom of God. 
And then he has a larger one finishing out the most of chapter 13, talking about a feast where the people who expected to be guests of the feast find themselves locked out, but many come from east, west, north and south to be included. Now, east, west, north and south, from an Israel, a Jewish point of view, they're foreigners, right? So this is 13, 18 and 19. You know, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, then the people will come from east and west and from north and south and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. And you'll be watching through the windows. That corresponds pretty amazingly to our parable of the great feast of the great banquet. So either side of the centerpiece about the coming death of Jesus are these two blocks that start with a Sabbath healing, then actually have two short parables. Following the two short parables, um, a scene concerning a banquet and whether you're going to find yourself included or excluded. Uh, so I personally don't think that's accidental. But what's the benefit of noticing these things? How do they help? What they do is they just draw our attention to the point that each gospel writer was trying to make. Many, many years ago, I was having a conversation with a Christian friend, and maybe, I, maybe we were talking about a harmony of the gospels or something like that, and he just said, there's four gospels for a reason. You know, you, we actually do need their separate perspectives and they're making their points in distinctive ways. We're not playing them against each other, right? They harmonise. But actually, each writer is presenting the ministry of Jesus in a, in a unique and distinctive way. It really pays off to appreciate what each one is doing. Luke has an emphasis on the fate of the poor and the underprivileged and the, their inclusion in the kingdom. He has a unique place for the status of women and includes them in his stories. Um, there's a whole series of things that make Luke distinctive. So we've talked about uh, the Sabbath healing that starts chapter 14. The couple of short parables that come before our main parable utilise this wedding feast or this feasting situation that is still the conversation setting. And Jesus just encourages humility for guests and generosity for hosts in verses 7 to 14. So... Um, this is an honour-shame society thing. I don't know if you've heard that term, honour-shame. It's a way of kind of saying that other societies than Western society have a more explicit system for recognising and crediting people with honour or for shaming them or for acknowledging that they bear shame or even for fixing and you know, balancing those things. Other societies have that whole thing more formalised. So if someone invites you to dinner... And you say, you know, sorry, no thanks, um, I can't come for this or that reason, right? Um, it is possible for that to be insulting. It could be, you know, under the wrong circumstances. Um, but imagine that whole scenario of whether you honour or dishonour the, the person who's inviting you. Imagine that all geared up a lot. Imagine that when you got to the person's house that you were invited to, you had to take exactly the right seat at the dining table because it would correspond to your status in society, right? So, you know, everyone comes around, but the wealthiest person gets to sit next to the host, and then the second most important person gets to sit next to them, and so on and so forth, all around the table. So I fortune, I'm kind of glad that our society is not that um, 
quite geared up, <laughs> quite they geared up about honour and status and everything like that. Most other societies are more geared up than ours, including the one that Jesus is speaking to. So it makes sense to them when he says to them, hey, you know, some of you, when you go to a feast, you naturally take seat number one because <laughs> you think you're naturally the most important person there. Isn't it embarrassing when then the host has to come and whisper in your ear, actually, there's three more people who are more important than you. Can you go down to seat number four? And so Jesus says, it would be better for you to take a lower seat, you know, go in with humility, and if the host has to say, no, 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 you, you know, seat number one was yours, it, that would be better. It's kind of a humility lesson. And then following that, he turns and speaks to the host in verse 12 and says, hey, you know, this will really break up your honour and shame system. When you hold a feast, don't just invite your friends and people on the same status level as you. Actually go and invite the un unwelcome and the unlovely and the unattractive. Invite them, the people without resources. Invite them to your feast. I'm suggesting this happens almost nowhere, anywhere in any society. So I just visualised this. Uh, Naomi and I went to a wedding reception about a month ago in St Kilda. You know, nice food, nice scene. And I just imagined, imagine if the organisers of that wedding reception literally went out and said, can I have six people go and look under all the bridges we can find around St Kilda and just bring in anyone you can find? Now, I'm sure some good-hearted person somewhere has done this just to kind of break the mould, but it's surprising behaviour. It's unusual. You can imagine the people squirming at the wedding reception when the three spare tables at three spare seats at all their tables are occupied by people who haven't had a shower for two months, you know, or you know, limping around with an untreated wound. This stuff doesn't happen. Didn't happen in Jesus' day. Didn't happen in ours. So Jesus is really trying to break these status walls down, because that's not what the kingdom is going to be like, right? The kingdom is not uh, an elitist kind of, you know, anyone who can cross above the bar gets in, and all the riffraff. Right, we're specifically keeping them out of the kingdom. Now, you can read this stuff. Uh, if we've ever idealised... Do you, do you remember learning about those communities that lived around the Dead Sea at the time of Jesus and they actually preserved the scrolls that were the Dead Sea scrolls and so we can compare Old Testament writings and stuff, right? Heard of them? Good, good. Okay, Dead Sea community. They call it Qumran because that was the name of the place, the Qumran community. Um, they sometimes compare what Qumran community said with Jesus because it was about the same time, right? So important contextual information. The Qumran people had a document whose name I've already forgotten again, but one of the documents that has mostly survived, and it said, here's the kind of people that are allowed to come into the community and join you know, at our table, join our feast, our community, or, or will be, you know, at the end of time when all things are as they should be, here's who's going to be in and here's who's going to be out. No one lame, no one blind, uh, no one, you know, bearing an obvious deformity or infirmity. If you're too old to stand up straight without wobbling, all of those people will be out of this feast. That's the Qumran community's spiritual ideal. When God has his great kingdom worked out, and has the desired people inside. It's all the people who are well and strong and healthy, no one with a short leg, no one with an infirmity, no one with a bad eye, no one who can't stand straight on their feet. So there's actually a number of cases where 
the kind of ways that the Qumran community talk about their ideal spiritual community is exactly what Jesus takes and turns on its head. So Jesus says, if you've heard that's what the kingdom is, it's exactly the opposite. And my host, you know, seems to be speaking to the real live guy. Um, get used to that by starting to implement it now. When you hold hosts in, uh, feasts in future, uh, invite the undesirables, the kind of people that usually you try and screen out at the door with the bouncer, bring them in. It's actually for you. It's actually for them and not just for you. So that's the context for the parable. Begins in verse 15 and says this in the Net Bible. When one of those at the meal with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. Now, a couple of scholars think this probably was kind of an invitation to say amen, you know, uh, from the people who expected to be there. So he probably still expected a natural Jewish affirmation. Yeah, blessed are those who enjoy this feast, in brackets, us. It's probably what they're thinking. I was going to try and find a movie illustration of this. All I could find was in Fiddler of the Roof, where um, the Jewish men are all standing around Tebia's milk cart, and they utter curses against the Tsar, and then they go, Amen, and they all spit, and then Tevye tries to cover all these milk cans so that they don't spit into them. Um, I'm thinking something more elaborate than that here. He might have actually expected uh, an overt affirmation. Blessed are those who join that feast. But Jesus never lets those things stand. You know, those sort of comfortable, self-affirming, convenient beliefs where it's the people who are already doing well who expect God to make them do well. And the others who aren't doing well, it's kind of assumed it's probably their fault somehow. This is a recurring belief in human faith. But Jesus said, verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time for this banquet, to the banquet, he sent the slave to tell those, sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, come because everything is now ready. But one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going out to examine them or test them. Please excuse me. And another said, ironically not needing so many excuses it seems, I just got married and I cannot come. As if, you know, that was enough information. It's possible that was a funny moment, right? You know, sometimes Jesus made funnies and that might have been one. So, these are the three excuses, and I wonder if they pass muster in your sense of what, you know, common sense. So, you might have to go to an equivalent, although the first one's pretty obvious. I've bought a field, I must go and see it. We might buy shoes online or something like that, you know, just on the chance that they're going to fit, whatever, but you don't often buy property without going and looking at it, right? I personally wouldn't buy a property without looking at it. I think it's supposed to feel a little bit, you know, a bit wrong. Buying five yoke of oxen, you probably, you and I probably haven't bought cows lately, but we might have bought a car. I don't know, would you buy a car without looking at it? I've heard one or two horror stories about this. I personally wouldn't. In fact, I'm slowly learning not to just rely on me test driving the car, but taking someone sensible. 
you probably wouldn't buy five yoke of oxen without looking at them either. So I think what Jesus is saying that these are not great excuses. These are a little bit like you've been invited to your best friend's wedding and you've said, no, sorry, one of the kids has a dental appointment. We won't be able to make it. All right, so just visualise this for a moment. Are you insulted? I think you should be insulted. They clearly can shift a dental appointment for best friend's wedding, right? This is the kind of situation where the invitation uh, should have been accepted and not only in an honour-shame society is there an insult, but really it would be an insult in any society. I have visualised the food out on the table. I forget why, but for some reason for this sermon prep, I went looking for the most expensive restaurant in Melbourne. Um, not having been there for some reason. Um, and so Vue de Monde, I think is the name of the one that was topping some of the search lists and it looks like a uh, standard meal would be over $200, but the reviews said it was worth it because reviews are objective. Uh, but I'm imagining a kind of a Vue de Monde standard meal already out on the table when this host finds out that none of the invited people are coming. So this is a really a step up from your best friend's wedding. This is the premier invites you to uh, a, you know, one of those special meals where you get political influence. Like you're invited to one of them uh, for free and then you say you can't go because your child has a dental appointment. Right? It's an obvious slight. So what does the master do? The slave comes back and says, actually, you, know, you see all these tables, you see all these meals out, the entrees already out. Um, not only are some people not coming, but nobody's coming. <laughs> Actually, none of the invitees are coming. It's a sort of a feast disaster so far. So the master of the household was furious, verse 21, and said to his slave, go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now again, we sometimes have to correct our own prejudices in our heads to not shun people who are really struggling in society. Uh, my sister was working out in Outback, uh, New South Wales, for a while, and we went to a service with her. And I remember seeing there was a guy outside who'd just wet his dacks, right, because he was past the point of being able to control that, so his you know, pants are all soaked and all that kind of thing, right? Uh, these are the sorts of people that we don't invite into our feasts. So it's not just in Jesus' day, in an unashamed, status-driven culture. We all have a culture driven by status to some extent. So this is the populace, the new uh, population of the feast that's going to come in. And the slave says in verse 22, what you instructed has been done in this still room. And so the master said to his slave, go out into the highways and the country roads and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. So this is a third target group and I think the difference is, is that now that we're outside the um, citizenship of the nation, I think we're out into foreigners. Travellers, passers-by, you know in Israel there are sort of main highways that run up and down and people go, that were going from Egypt to Mesopotamia, Egypt to Babylon or something like that, they would have to go through uh, the fringes of Israel. And so the people you'd find on the highways might be Egyptians or Sudanese people going to the Middle East, as it were, 
Middle Easterners and people from Turkey and whatever going to Egypt and Africa, um, they're just passers-by. They might stop in a motel, that's it. So they're not Israelites at all, right? They're not the same ethnic group. They're outsiders in that sense. This symbolism probably does express what's going on in Jesus' day and the particular moment to which he speaks. So we need to understand that before we make the transfer to what it means for us today. Even the preceding context about the feasts uh, and the warning in chapter 13 about finding yourself on the outside, basically the religious leadership of Israel in Jesus' day understood themselves to be the natural heirs to the kingdom. So, you know, their image of what the kingdom was was formed by their knowledge of what David's kingdom had been and the the greatness, the golden past of David and Solomon. This is what they were looking for. They'd been through terrific hardship in the intervening years. Uh, Israel had fallen, the northern kingdom, and then even Judah and Jerusalem had fallen. Uh, Those who were left were exiles, refugees in Babylon for many years. And so they'd been to the very bottom, really, in their experience. But they'd returned, they'd been able to rebuild a new community, you know, Book of Ezra, all of that. And their hopes for what the kingdom was going to be were sort of, the image was formed by the greatness of the kingdom of the past, the greatness of the Davidic kingdom. That's what they were looking for again, looking for a new king, a chosen one, right? A, A messianic anointed king, one to stand in David's shoes, as it were, and to lead the nation again. And the Jewish leadership, they were very conscious of having really deliberately kept the law for generations. They'd worked very hard at it. They'd produced a whole, well, kind of in the, in the process of producing a whole documentation that would um, skirt around the Old Testament law, not skirt around it to avoid it, I mean to explain it and analyse it and really say, well, if you want to know what not working on the Sabbath is and isn't, you know, here's a whole kind of book's length explanation of that. That's where we get the Talmud, right? If you look at it, look for a Jewish Talmud, the Jewish law, uh, on our library shelf at MST, it's about that long, right? That's how big the Talmud is. So this much biblical law in our Old Testament, you know, uh, Exodus numbers, Leviticus numbers, then gets a Mishnah of Jewish explanation, it's about one volume's worth, And the Mishnah and the Old Testament law get a Talmud's worth of explanation. And the whole purpose of that was um, we offended God in the past by violating the law. Let's never make that mistake again by defining it down to the nth degree. So today, you know, you can find documentaries where, um, you know, there there were lifts in uh, uh, apartment buildings in Florida occupied by mostly Jewish people that had arrangements that would allow them to not to have to press a button on the Sabbath because that would actually be a violation of the Sabbath. So the lift was re-engineered so you wouldn't have to press a button, right? So these were the people who, who knew. These are the, uh, often the well-off. They were the legal experts. They were the teachers, the synagogue leaders. They had made a profession of obeying the law and of not violating it. They were conscious. They'd put everything into it. Like the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He was one of these. They had really put their best efforts into fulfilling the will of God. And they looked around them in society and they saw lots of people who didn't try very hard and who you know, did things on the Sabbath 
I remember we had a Jewish lady in our congregation up at Mwilumbai when I was pastoring up there. And she said that when her father died, a relative came and checked in their fridge and was more offended about the fact that she had ham in the fridge than that her father had died, right? So um, this was the kind of vigilance that was being applied to this. So they expected themselves essentially to be in the lead seats at the great feast when the kingdom was introduced. They were believers in the kingdom. They believed God could bring it back. They believed that God's anointed would come to lead it. And they expected to be, you know, for all those efforts they'd been putting in, they expected to be the privileged ones. They didn't expect um, to, there to be any question about that. But Jesus is saying, this is that moment. You know, the, the hint is probably there in the feast is now ready, right, in the parable. Because when Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom. So this is the moment. He is saying, you know, You've been hearing about this great feast. Well, now the food's on the table and it's time to come in. But increasingly, and this is how Luke and the other Gospels portray it, that there's this increasing rejection of Jesus. So the guests, the intended guests, the people who have the invite on their fridge, they don't recognise Jesus as the one who was authorised to invite them in the door. They think he's an imposter. And so when he says the feast is now ready, they're not listening. And so he is saying, it's really critical if you miss the invite in the door. I guess I still have mental pictures of this wedding that Naomi and I went to. And I just imagine someone who, when the meal is actually being served in the reception, because sometimes you wait around for a while at receptions, right? When the meal's actually going on the table, uh, you're deciding, no, actually, this is the time when I really need my smoke on the on the on the front veranda, or, you know, I've definitely got some calls to make. Um, I better do them instead. Jesus is finding an audience who's been waiting for the kingdom all their lives, and now that the meal's ready, won't come in the door. And so he is saying, you know, this is not kind of an indefinite open invitation. If you don't come in the door, there's a limited set of tickets The master of the feast will give your ticket to somebody else if you don't come in the door, right? Don't be too casual about it. Just because you've been in the foyer of the reception place for hours and kind of, and you've you've got your invite in one hand and you know that your name's on a little stand on one of the tables, you know, you you know that you're one of those people. You're conscious of being an invitee. Um, If you never go in the door of the feast, you you won't be in. You're not in the kingdom. You've actually got to, you know, get up, put your mobile phone away, pack the smokes away and actually go in when the feast is announced. And they're not doing that because they don't believe Jesus is the one who can tell them that. So what I think is so transferable about that today, it's not really that we're in the same moment in God's plan that Jesus was announcing. Um, You know, this is 2,000 years later. So the urgency, in a sense, doesn't come from the fact that God's herald of the kingdom is right there. Even not more than the herald, in a sense, John the Baptist is the herald and uh, the son is the, um, you know, like the, the one who runs the feast on behalf of the father. So he's there ready to run it and they're not responding to him. So this is not that moment in spiritual history. But I think... Where we share an equally urgent setting is 
it's still true that these tickets don't last forever. And sometimes they might not last forever because, you know, I don't know, maybe it's our testing God's patience. That's what it was here. They were testing God's patience in waiting for them. Uh, But sometimes it's also that we change and that that makes it harder. So we can be deceived when we are used to living in the circle of the church that kind of, you know, regular attendance or being part of church life, we can be a bit like the Jewish leaders and assume that being within that broad orbit makes us part of the kingdom. We're kind of automatically uh, participants in it, the way that they were thinking. But I think uh, being involved in the orbit of the church is a bit like being somewhere in the reception facility, right? Where within reach, we've sort of got in, you know, we've got an invitation, uh, we know the message, we understand what the feast is for, but there's a sense in which we've actually got to come and plant our backside on one of the seats. We've actually got to own our spot in the kingdom. And... God's not obliged to wait indefinitely for us to find our way around to that, to sort of find when it's convenient for us to slot that in with our other responsibilities. What are these things that are distracting the people in the feast? It's the stuff of life. It's buying and selling and investing and big purchases and the first home. It's making sure that your working life is sorted out and your education is completed. Uh, This is the stuff of life. Jesus is not really saying, if you're going to be a kingdom person, never buy or sell anything. Never take part in a transaction. Don't own any land. He's going to say shortly, be ready to let it go. But he's not saying, I'm trying to create sort of an Amish community that doesn't participate in uh, the normal economy and do those life things. But there's that same risk that I think Pete talked about when he talked about the different soils you know, the risk that's most like this one is the soil that gets cluttered up with weeds and other concerns, right? We are very prone to distraction, and if it's not entertainment-type distractions, it's the distractions of the stuff of living where you've got to get an income and you've got to maintain a property and you've got to look after a family and drive them around. That stuff can take our eyes off attending to this important business of the kingdom and whether we've really sat our bottom on one of the seats when the feast is ready. So how do I think we actually publicly symbolise that we're planting our bottom on one of the seats and we're not just hanging around in the lobby? I personally think that's what baptism is for. Now we do baptism, we're kind of the exceptions in the Christian world, right? You know, us Baptists and some kind of Church of Christ and... um, I've got a brother-in-law who's sort of did his ed- education in Anglican circles in Sydney but runs a church that's pretty kind of baptistic in this sense. When they baptise, they do it in a natural rock pool uh, at the coast up there in New South Wales, which is a good way to do it, right? Doing it out there in public and letting the world know, even though it's a bit kind of embarrassing and confronting. Because the purpose of baptism, as we understand it, We would say, well, look, baptism counts if it's authentic for you, meaning your will is involved, your personal free choice. This is why we don't baptise infants, right? This is a difference for us from other denominations. We just believe that it's got to reflect your own commitment to God and therefore you can't make that choice yet as a baby. No, I know about the theological 
debate around that either way. You probably know that as well. But that's why we leave it to later to be baptised in these circles. Now, we have this interesting risk, don't we, that people will never get round to it, right? I don't know if you've thought about that. I don't know if you've noticed that it happens in our circles, but it does, right? So I'm not talking about people who came in from other denominations and have to just think about the authenticity of their own infant baptism and so forth, but in Baptist and similar circles, our risk is that we never actually bother to do it. But baptism is actually the if you like, the authorised mode, the biblical mode for raising a flag and saying, righto, I'm a disciple of Jesus. This is why this, I'm letting you know, you know. Uh, even better, almost, if this was open and the world could see. But this is what we do. We say, I'm getting baptised to let you know that I am a disciple of Jesus, that I'm announcing that. This is what I'm doing. I'm formalising that and announcing it. So it's not that I... I'm kind of a sacramental sort of thinker and that um, the actual act does the magic, right? It, it, the act doesn't produce the heart. The heart precedes the act. But the act is to tell the world, at least to tell your community, this is where I stand. I'm actually planning my backside on one of the seats in the kingdom. And, of course, it's, it goes beyond that, right? Because Jesus says this in this whole environment of... Uh, I'm headed for a date with destiny. I'm going to die. And so he keeps saying things, very confronting things, right after this parable. Verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, this is the hardest thing Jesus says, I think, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, these seven things, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, in the same way, if not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his possessions. This is the hardest version of the hardest thing that Jesus said in any of the Gospels, I think. Now, there is a hyperbole factor because he's not actually asking us to literally hate family and friends. But he's speaking in an environment where you might well have to choose. You could think of it at this moment, like becoming a Christian in Iran under the current regime, right? Uh, if you choose the faith, if you choose to announce your discipleship in that environment, um, death is not an unlikely consequence or ostracism from your family or at least being greatly separated from your family as you flee overseas or whatever. That's a likely outcome. So Jesus is saying, in our circumstances, when I call you now, you're likely to have to choose, and it's going to have to be either family or me. We're not often forced into that degree of stark choice, but this was the kind of environment. Even following Jesus at all was going to involve, you know, being a disciple in his time was going to involve actually uprooting, dropping everything, and going on the road. So, you know, the first people Jesus invites as disciples, you know, Peter and uh, James and John and Andrew, they just get out of their boats and they leave the nets there and they just walk off. You can imagine how Dad feels about the family business, you know, Zebedee and co. You've done what? You know, how are we supposed to live? You guys are the labour, you know, I did it for 30 years, says Zebedee, and now, you know, 
I'm past the point of being out in the boats. You guys are meant to run the family business. That's how we eat. Um, and they've just up and left because that's the kind of choice that even being a disciple, which Jesus names here, that's the kind of choice that was involved. They, they would drop everything and the next day they're out of town. So add to that the fact that now it's probably going to be fatal and you see why the choice is stark. He's still being followed by a big crowd and he says to them, you know, you guys think this is a game, this is no game and you now have to decide, are you ready to die for this? Not only are you ready to leave home for this, but are you ready to die? If you're not ready to die, um, you know, it's nice to have your company, but I'm after the serious ones now. So it's super confronting. So we are not likely to be immediately faced by that kind of stark choice. But if we get baptised, effectively what we're saying is, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus now. Right now it's probably costing me nothing. Some of my friends probably think I'm an idiot. I, I can, you know, like a, that's survivable. I can get up the next day even if my friends think I'm dopey. But if it came to it, where would I be? We're actually meant to be cross-bearers still and still prepared to die. Now, Jesus actually say, is saying, you know, well, sign up or don't sign up. Don't just hang around in the lobby, you know. Are you in the kingdom or are you not? Don't, don't just sort of hover around the edges. And so here's why, where I think the urgency comes from if it's not from the immediate threat of persecution or something. I think it's that when we have these moments when we're sensitive to God and ready to hear his call about discipleship of Christ, when we let those moments go, uh, we tend to become less sensitive and more distracted, increasingly so as life goes on. So if we keep turning down our opportunity to really enter and sit on a seat when God has our attention, we can be sure that later on he's going to have a lot less of it as we're distracted by everything from our, kind of, our iPhone to our mortgage. So as we pass up these moments of invitation, sometimes it's us that kind of force God to give our ticket to somebody else because we had plenty of chances to look at it and we never would come and sit at our spot at the table. We have 100 distractions in our world. We've got to make sure that we've been listening when God tries to get our attention to join the feast. And so don't be afraid to reconsider if baptism's never crossed your radar, that that's what it's for. It's actually to say, um, you know, to all who want to know, I'm taking my spot at the feast. It's my symbolism. It's my given symbol to do that. So that's the warning, I think, of this parable. And these parables are full of warning. And it's our job to understand how the, the admonition, how the warning transfers from a time when the situation was different into a time where we're more at risk of how, things are, how easy things are than how difficult and dangerous they are. So let me pray and I'll invite the music team back up. Lord, I just pray that there might be a tender moment in the present, an open moment for some who are here that would be listening to you and that we would settle up where we stand in regard to the kingdom. Lord, help us not to hang around in the lobby and just sort of be out in the car park but really make sure that we join our spot at the feast. And Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.